turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus says this, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now as we open up your word and we ask that you would be with us. We ask that you would help us. Help me to proclaim your word truthfully and faithfully and help this church to receive it from you. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the church. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. In life, there are many decisions you will have to make, many convictions you will have to think through, and many actions that you will have to walk through. In all of these different decisions, convictions, and actions, there are typically going to be at least three options available to you. There is the left, the right, and then right down the middle. To use a common metaphor, there is a road and there are ditches on both sides. This metaphor is helpful because it illustrates the danger of overemphasis one way or the other. If you only consider one side of a debate, a decision, a conviction, or an action, you will likely end up in one of these ditches. However, if we understand the dangers that are on both sides of the far right and the far left, we will walk safely down the road, safe and sound. For example, let's consider everyone here who enjoys coffee. On the one side, you have those who only drink black coffee, likely a pour-over, because they're concerned about tasting the different notes and flavors of the coffee. They can go on and on about the nutty flavors or the chocolatey or the fruity flavors present within each and every sip. These people are rightly labeled coffee snobs. <laughs> then... On the other side, you have those who actually don't enjoy the taste of coffee. They just want the caffeine, so they add a ton of creamer and sugar, and their cup of coffee more resembles a milkshake than it does a coffee. And then there are the normal people who are right in the middle. These people certainly enjoy a good cup of black coffee, but they also enjoy a good latte every once in a while. There's good variety in their coffee experience. Now, this illustration is intentionally meant to be silly, but hopefully you can see a little bit of what I'm getting at. Consider one more significant illustration, this time no silliness involved. The divinity of Christ. Throughout church history, there have been some who have argued that Jesus was divine, but they so emphasized his divinity that they ended up erring in regard to his humanity, which is a very serious heresy. But then there have been others who have so emphasized his humanity that they erred in regard to his divinity. And their Jesus is less than fully divine, which again is another serious heresy. And then there is the truth. 
that Jesus is the God-man, that he was truly divine and he's truly human. Well, hopefully these two illustrations help to clarify that there are often ditches on the far right and the far left of the truth. And what we are going to see in our passage this morning is that there, is that there are two fatal errors to avoid when it comes to following Jesus. And these two errors are particularly related to obedience to God's word. How does the Christian relate to the law of God, especially in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? This is an incredibly important question for us to think through. So I want to say from the get-go, we need to think carefully about what we're going to talk about this morning. It has wide implications for your life as a follower of Christ. The passage we are going to look at this morning is one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament for understanding the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament. So needless to say, we need to take this seriously. With all that said, the first error to avoid is that of antinomianism. Antinomianism. Now as soon as I say that word, some of you might be tempted to check out. But this word is important for us to think about. This morning, the word antinomianism is a compound word. That means it's two words put together, which combines the Greek preposition anti, which means against, with a form of the Greek word namas, which is the word for law. So this word literally means anti-law or against law. This word was frequently used to describe someone who lives as if obeying God's law doesn't actually matter. Paul addresses the spirit of antinomianism in Romans 6.1 when he says, Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? He'd go on to say, by no means. The idea is that it doesn't really matter what we do or how we live because, after all, we're covered by grace, right? But this is a terribly confused understanding of what Scripture actually teaches. And in our passage today, Jesus is going to respond to some who may have been accusing him of being somewhat like an antinomian, of not keeping the Old Testament law. Look back down at your Bibles to verses 17 through 19. Jesus says this, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, no one has actually accused Jesus of violating the law. However, we do know that later in Matthew's Gospel, this was a common criticism of Jesus' ministry. Remember what we read about in chapter 12 concerning Jesus and his disciples in the grain field. Matthew 12, 1-2 says, At that time Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Or remember how Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Just a few verses later in Matthew 12, we read about Jesus healing a man with a shriveled hand on a Sabbath. In light of these criticisms and others we read about elsewhere, we do know that Jesus was accused of relaxing or breaking God's law. Now we know that Jesus didn't actually disobey God's law. <coughs> Excuse me. 
He rather challenged some of the traditions of the Jewish leaders that they had put up around God's law. But the point remains, Jesus was accused of being some sort of an antinomian. But in the strongest way possible, Jesus is going to correct this misunderstanding. Look back down at verse 17. He says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus clearly says that he did not come to abolish or destroy or dismantle the law or the prophets. The phrase, the law and the prophets, is one way that a Jew in the time of Christ could refer to the entire Old Testament. So rather than abolish the Old Testament or the law or the prophets, Jesus came to fulfill them. Now we'll come back to what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law and the prophets a little bit later. But Jesus continues to attack this misconception that he is guilty of relaxing or not obeying the law of God. Look back down at verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. When Jesus says the smallest letter here, he's referring to the Hebrew letter Yod. The Hebrew letter Yod was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It is just a little squiggle. And when he refers to one stroke of a letter, your Bible may say something like a tittle. He's likely referring to a little mark that helped to distinguish between several different Hebrew letters, a very, very small stroke of the pen. The point, however, is that Jesus upholds the authority of the Old Testament scriptures down to the smallest stroke of the pen possible. Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that he has the highest view of scripture. Notice what else he says in this verse, though. He uses two until clauses to further describe his view of the abiding nature of Scripture. Look down again at verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Now just in passing, anytime Jesus says something like truly I tell you or truly I say to you, We should note that he is trying to draw emphasis to what he is about to say. But back to the first until clause. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law. Now, if we had just this sentence and the second until clause were removed, then we would have a statement here by Jesus claiming that nothing would change concerning his people's relation to the Old Testament scriptures until heaven and earth pass away, which is a way to refer to the end of the age. We know that at the end of all things, this current heaven and earth will pass away and a new heaven and earth will come. And if the second clause were removed, then we would have a bit of a problem here as Christians because we know that things have changed for us in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Think of the sacrificial system, or think of the food laws, or the clothing laws. If the second clause were removed, then there would be absolutely no room for anything in the law to change. But look again at the second until clause, which helps to clarify what Jesus meant. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. This until clause offsets the first and gives a more nuanced view of the law in light of fulfillment. 
Once again, we're going to come back to this idea of fulfillment in a little bit. But for now, know that Jesus is saying that until every detail of the law is fulfilled, nothing will be relaxed. Nothing will be ignored. And nothing will be set aside. Finally, look back down at verse 19. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Here again, we see Jesus upholding the highest view of Scripture. And not only for himself, but also for his followers. Whoever breaks or loosens or abolishes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now there is a word play here with the word breaks as it is from the same root word as the word in verse 17 where Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law. Because of this connection to verse 17, I take these commands to be referring to the Old Testament law and not necessarily to everything that Jesus will say in the ongoing context of the Sermon on the Mount. In light of that, once again, Jesus is saying, I did not come to abolish the law, and anyone who says they follow me and lives as if the law were abolished and teaches others that the law is abolished will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it is debated as to whether this person who loosens or abolishes the law actually gets into the kingdom of heaven at all. Because of the wordplay used here, some people think that to be called least in the kingdom of heaven is actually to be excluded from the kingdom of heaven altogether. They argue this because all throughout the sermon there are typically two types of people pictured. Those who truly belong to the kingdom and whose life reflects it, and those who are hypocrites. Those who don't actually do the will of God and obey his word from their heart. Those who hold this view will often point to Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, which says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many mighty miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Notice the connection between lawlessness and law-breaking and not entering the kingdom of heaven. However, the other view is that all those who are guilty of loosening the commands do, in fact, enter the kingdom of heaven. They are just, uh, metaphorically speaking, on the bottom of the totem pole within the kingdom of heaven. Either way, it is clear that both options are bad, and you should avoid being one of those who is called least in the kingdom of heaven at all costs. So now that we've worked through these verses, I want to ask you several questions to seek to apply these verses to our own hearts today. First, do you have the same high view of the Old Testament that Jesus had? Jesus has the highest view of Scripture one can have. Yet when it comes to Christians today, some in the church may treat the Old Testament like it is no longer useful or relevant or like it's too confusing or offensive. You may be familiar with this, but a pastor a few years ago <coughs> excuse me, said for apologetic purposes, because the Old Testament is too confusing and hard to understand and uncomfortable at times, that Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Yet this is far from Jesus' view, and it is far from the Apostles' view in the New Testament. For example, consider 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. 
says this, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. These are incredibly strong words about the use of Scripture in the Christian's life, about how it sanctifies us and builds us up and equips us in every way. But notice that when Paul was penning those words, the New Testament was still in the process of being written. So whenever Paul says all Scripture, what is the primary Scripture he had in his mind? The Old Testament. The Old Testament was still clearly authoritative and essential to the life and theology of the Apostle Paul. And the same should be true for you and me. Second, do you have a negative perception of the law of God? Or in other words, do you think that the law of God is actually a bad thing? In conservative theological circles, we tend to make a lot of the law and gospel distinction. And when that conversation is correctly understood and appropriately nuanced, it is a good and fruitful discussion. However, I'm afraid at times that the result of that conversation leaves people thinking that the law of God is negative in and of itself, and that it is seen as something that needs to be abolished. Perhaps a part of this negativity comes from the way, the way we translate law. But our, behind our English translations of law is the word Torah. Though law is not necessarily a bad translation per se, the meaning of Torah is more like instruction. <coughs> Excuse me. God's Torah is God's instructions for His people on how to live in this world in a way that both honors Him and in a way that His people will truly flourish. Now, there are still seemingly negative or pejorative statements in the New Testament about the law. For example, you may think of Romans 5.20, which says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Sometimes when we read about the negative consequences of the law, we may be tempted to think that the law in itself is not a good thing. However, if you read the New Testament carefully, you would see repeated affirmation of the law of God. In Romans chapter 7, for instance, Paul takes great pains to demonstrate that it is sin that is actually the problem, not the law. Listen carefully to what Paul says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but then when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again, and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. I want to ask, does your understanding of the law of God give you the ability to say with Paul, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good? Or with the psalmist, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. <clears throat> if not, you may have more of an antinomian understanding of the law than a true biblical understanding of the law of God. 
Third, and finally, do you at all minimize obedience to the commands of Scripture? Some think that we are free in Christ and that this means that we are free to do whatever we want. After all, we're under grace. As one old reworked hymn said, Free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. It's not biblical, by the way. Now, if we went around the room this morning, very few of us would actually say that we believe that. We are often not this flippant or at least explicit in our thinking about this. Rather, this minimization of obedience tends to work itself out more like this. We are tempted to sin, then we give in to sin, and then we seek to self-justify to cover up our sin. For example, you may be tempted to gossip about someone else in this church. You know what Paul says, though, in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You know this text. You know that gossip is sin. Yet you choose to minimize obedience anyways and go ahead and partake in the gossip because it feels good. And then comes the self-justification. You will be quick to add a tagline after you have indulged your flesh and you'll say something like this, and bless his heart, he just needs help. Let, we should pray for him. Or you say something like, I'm just so concerned for him, I, I can't believe he did that. That's disgusting. I, but he just needs our help. Let, let, let's commit to pray for him. You seek to cover up your gossip with spiritual language. This is an attempt to cover up your disobedience. This is you sowing for yourself fig leaves to cover up the shame. If you were truly concerned for this individual, then you would actually go to him. You would do what Jesus says in Matthew 18. I'm wondering, are you guilty of this? Do you frequently minimize obedience to God's word and then seek to justify it after you indulge? Or perhaps you may be guilty of functionally picking and choosing what commands to obey. Or to say it another way, do you relax one of the least of these commands because you just don't think it's that significant? If we are brutally honest, I think we'd all say that we do this far more than we'd like to admit. Now there's actually a solution to these antinomian tendencies that we may have. And to be crystal clear, the answer is not just to do better. It's not mere external conformity to the law of God without addressing your heart. But before we get to the solution, we first need to address the second fatal error, <coughs> which is legalism. Legalism. Look back down at your text in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now I have to admit, before the past few weeks of studying for this sermon, this verse has always given me a bit of trouble in my daily Bible reading. To give you a further backstory into my struggle over this passage, there are a few things that we need to consider. Perhaps the most important is that the Pharisees and scribes and how they were viewed in the first century. When we read the New Testament, we can be quick to develop a propensity to think that the Pharisees and the scribes are the bad guys. And to be sure, they are negatively depicted in the New Testament. Yet what we must know is that during Jesus' day, they were actually seen as the good guys. They were held in incredibly high esteem by the Jewish people. I mean, after all, consider briefly Jewish history. What was the consistent problem with the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament? They didn't obey the law of God. It is amazing how quickly they went from being saved by God from Egypt 
to giving into idolatry, and that pattern continued throughout their history. This disobedience led eventually to their exile, but God was gracious. He led the people back into the land, and then in between our Old and New Testaments, a group known as the Pharisees came into existence. And when the Pharisees came into existence, they were incredibly concerned with keeping and obeying the law of God. The name Pharisee is even derived from this idea of being separate from. The Pharisees were separatists, meaning if no one else was going to keep the law, they were. And because of this, they were known as being incredibly faithful to God and were highly esteemed by the people of Israel. They even developed an oral tradition around the law in an effort to try and keep them from breaking the actual law. And you'll note that this oral law was one of the things that Jesus was constantly pushing back on in his ministry and critiquing them for. The scribes were also esteemed very highly. One commentator noted that the scribes were originally official recorders of the law and became an important group in Judaism, to some extent even supplanting the priests and the Levites as interpreters of Torah. They were the lawyers or the legal experts in Torah of their day as well as major teachers of Torah. So once again, these men, the scribes and the Pharisees, were the good guys. They were the righteous ones of the first century. And with this in mind, when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, everyone listening to him would have developed a serious lump in their throat. Did he just say that we have to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees to get into the kingdom of heaven? That's impossible. And one of the major views of how to interpret this passage insists on just that. That's how they interpret. They say that the point of this is that the, there is, it, it is impossible on your own merit to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's why we need the imputed righteousness of Christ. And while we do need the imputed righteousness of Christ, I don't think that's what's going on here. I actually think Jesus means what he says. Rather, I think a plain reading of this text reveals that our righteousness must actually be more than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, in order to explain this, we need to take a step back and discuss the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Our passage this morning serves as the thesis statement for the central section in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this central section, Jesus is teaching that it is necessary to have a greater righteousness to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In the immediately following passages, Jesus talks about a greater righteousness in relation to Torah. You're familiar with these, but the first one says, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And then he gives several other examples about a proper understanding of a command from Torah. Then in the next section, he talks about greater righteousness in relationship to personal piety. For example, the first uh, one in chapter 6, verse 1. <coughs> be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you would have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he gives several more examples, such as prayer and fasting. And then finally, he concludes the central section by discuss- discussing greater righteousness in relation to daily life in the world. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he give examples about money and anxiety. 
Now, the point of all of this is that Jesus is demonstrating a greater righteousness that all of those who are entering the kingdom of heaven must have. Now, how does that relate to the scribes and the Pharisees? Didn't they practice these things devotedly as well? Yes, in part. But this is why we develop our negative perception of the scribes and Pharisees. Because though they were striving to be faithful to God and obey God's law to the highest degree, they missed a crucial aspect to obedience to Yahweh. And that is obedience that is derived from the heart. One of the major themes in the Sermon on the Mount is wholeness or total or complete devotion to God from your heart. To state the thing negatively, you could say that a lack of wholeness is hypocrisy. When we think of hypocrisy, we think of someone who says one thing but does another. Like someone who says that gossip is sin and then partakes in gossip. However, in the Sermon on the Mount, hypocrisy is being externally righteous but not internally righteous. It is a righteousness that is only skin deep. And this is the precise problem that the scribes and the Pharisees have and that Jesus goes after. He goes after their heart. They are hypocrites in that they are seemingly externally righteous, but their righteousness is not true righteousness because it is not derived from a love of Yahweh. This is precisely what Jesus says in Matthew's uh, gospel later in chapter 23. Hear his words, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. But it should not be true for us, church. We must be entirely devoted to God from the inside out. So with all that considered, when Jesus says in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes of the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. He actually means it. Only those who are totally dedicated to Yahweh from the heart, only those whose righteousness springs from their heart, from a love of God, will actually enter the kingdom of heaven on the last day. Mere external conformity to the law of God will not actually have you enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. Which brings us to consider further this second fatal error, that of legalism. Legalism. Now when I say legalism, some of you might think that legalism is something like trying to earn salvation by doing good deeds or by mere obedience to the law of God. And that is true in part. But legalism is also far more than just that definition. If I were to ask you, are you trying to obey God so that you can earn your salvation? Most of you who have any understanding of theology would say, no, we're saved by grace through faith. Yet legalism is far more deceptive than that. So how do we define legalism? Well, a theologian that I enjoy named Gerhardus Voss defined it this way. Legalism is a particular kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rules it submits to. I'll read it one more time. Legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. Or in other words, you could define legalism as legalism is simply separating the law of God from the person of God. 
This is a distorted view that begins to view the law of God negatively or as merely negative commands, and we forget that the law of God is actually good and was given to us by our loving Heavenly Father. As one writer put it, God becomes a magnified policeman who gives his law only because he wants to deprive us of a particular joy. I wonder, with that definition in mind, or more, maybe more full definition in mind, do any of you seem to struggle with legalism? Can you see this in your own heart? To help you probe a bit, I'm going to ask and answer a few questions. Think about it a few different ways. The first way this legalistic spirit manifests itself is what I've already mentioned above, when someone actually tries to earn favor with God by obeying the law. When this person is walking in obedience, they feel pretty good about themselves, about how they're doing before the Lord. Their days seem to go well. But when they stumble in sin, they begin to question their salvation and their standing before the Lord. That's the first thought that comes to their mind. Their salvation, in other words, is more based upon how well they can keep the law instead of being based upon how well Christ kept the law for them in their place, in his death and resurrection as well. Or perhaps this legalistic spirit is present in your life with a self-righteous disposition. The self-righteous person often compares themselves and their righteousness with others and their lack of apparent righteousness. The self-righteous person might look down their nose at another Christian who has sinned and think, come on, get it together. It's not that hard to obey. What is wrong with you? Think of the parable that Jesus told in Luke 18 concerning the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. The Pharisee was deriving his sense of his righteousness by comparing his life to others. Are you ever tempted to do the same thing? Or perhaps this legalistic spirit is revealed in your heart whenever God's grace is truly scandalous. Remember the story of the prodigal son? He insults his family, sins horrendously, and then returns home seeking to merely become a servant in his father's house. But how does the father respond? with a ton of undeserved grace. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. This was truly scandalous grace. But how did the older brother respond? He didn't rejoice that his brother was even alive or that he had returned for that matter, did he? No, he sulked. And he thought that the father had been incredibly unfair to him. Here he was obeying his father, doing everything he was told, and he never received a party like that. Are you ever critical of the way God chooses to lavish his grace on people that you know in your life, you can see? Do you ever think that God is unfair to you, maybe, by allowing you to walk through certain seasons of difficulty? Here you are striving to obey him. You attend church every time the doors are open. You pray, you read your Bible, and then here comes a cancer diagnosis. God, what are you thinking? I'm faithful. How could you do this to me? Beware of this legalistic spirit in your heart. Finally, perhaps you are just like the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus critiqued in the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe on the outside... You look like you're righteous and like you have it all together. Perhaps everyone in this church thinks that you're an exemplary Christian. 
But you might be recognizing even now that your heart is actually far from the Lord. That your obedience is not stemming from a heart that loves the Lord, that truly delights in God. Rather, you're motivated by something else, perhaps fear of man. You don't want to be exposed as a fraud, so you work your fingers to the bone in an effort to keep up the charade. You are running and working as hard as you can to appear righteous, but you know, deep down, you know that your righteousness is only skin deep. Is there any hope for us today? If you feel or resonate with one of these, is there any hope for you? There is. There is great hope for you today. There's great hope for me today. It's found in Christ. The answer to antinomianism is not legalism. Simply adding more law to one's life won't fix anybody. And the answer to legalism is not antinomianism. Telling people to relax and live and let live a little will not cure their legalistic heart. What will cure these two fatal errors for us? Well, that's found in our third and final point, the solution. The solution. Look back down at your text once again to verse 17. Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The cure for these two fatal errors is found in that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. But what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law and the prophets? Now, some of you who may be a little bit more well-read will understand that this passage is actually incredibly debated. If you've ever heard of the terms dispensationalism, covenant theology, progressive covenantalism, theonomy, each of these different camps would have a different answer to the question that I just asked and what it means for Jesus to fulfill the law. But instead of working through all of these different nuances, I'm simply going to tell you what I think, and if you, can, if you have a problem, you can take it up with Pastor Logan, <laughs> or you can come and talk to me afterwards. For Jesus to fulfill the law and the prophets, which again was another way referring to the entire Old Testament, means that the entire Old Testament, in one way or another, was pointing to Jesus. That it finds its telos, or its completion, in Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. Or, if it's yet unfilled, it will find its fulfillment when he returns in his second coming with the restoration of all things. If you remember back to earlier in this sermon, that is why the second until clause is so important. Look back at verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Jesus is fulfilling everything in the old covenant, and nothing will be set aside until it is fulfilled in him. Now I believe that most of that happened most of the law and the prophets were fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection whenever he first came. However, there are still some things associated with his return that will be fulfilled at his second coming. But this is how we must think through the discontinuity from the old covenant to the new covenant. Why are there differences between the old covenant and the new covenant? Why is it okay for us to eat barbecue today? We're in Kansas City. We love barbecue. Why is that okay? Why is it okay for us to wear materials and garments sewn from two different materials? And on and on. What about the animal sacrifices? The answer is found in Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, once again, how that specifically works out is debated and takes books to, to think deeply on and to pray about and to meditate on Scripture. 
But I want you to think through with me several ways that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets here this morning. <coughs> Jesus is the true Adam who, though repeatedly tempted, withstood Satan's temptation and did not sin. Jesus is the head crusher who would bruise the head of the serpent, though his heel would be struck. Jesus is the true Isaac, who was actually given by his father as a sacrifice on the mountain. Jesus is the lion from the tribe of Judah, from whom the scepter, meaning reign, will not depart. Jesus is the true Moses, who brings a new exodus, not out of bondage from Egypt, from, but from sin, Satan, and from death. Jesus is the spotless Passover lamb, whose blood allows God's wrath to pass over his people. Jesus is the true tabernacle, who tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, by taking on flesh in his incarnation. Jesus is the substance of the entire sacrificial system, which was a shadow pointing forward to his atoning death on the cross for you and for me. Jesus is our great high priest, who perfectly and continually intercedes for us on, behalf of, on our behalf before God. Jesus is the prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy 18, who was to come. Jesus is the new temple through whom man can dwell with God and God can dwell with man. Jesus is our Sabbath rest through whom we have true and abiding rest for our souls. Jesus is the true Israel who was God's true son and faithful son who was tempted in every way though yet did not give in and did not complain. Jesus is the Davidic king who will reign forever. Jesus is the suffering servant from Isaiah 53 who was pierced for our transgressions who was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We could go on and on seeing these connections, but it all comes down to the fact that everything was pointing to Jesus, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, to his eventual consummation of the kingdom, which he inaugurated in his first coming. All of it is found true in Christ. Now, you may have noticed a lot of the examples that we just worked through. Some of them were typological, but we could have gone on and on with specific prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his coming. But the point remains, the law and the prophets were pointing to Jesus and have their fulfillment in him. And you may be thinking, how is Jesus' fulfillment of the law and prophets the solution to the two fatal errors of antinomianism and legalism? That's a great question, and let's start by answering with legalism. At the heart of legalism is a desire to earn God's favor through obedience. But we know that we could never obey God enough to be right with God. But through Jesus fulfilling the law perfectly, he was able to fulfill all righteousness and become the perfect sacrifice in our place and die the death that we deserved for our sin. So now when we are united to Christ by faith, his perfect righteousness from fulfilling the law and the prophets is imputed to us as our sin was imputed to him on the cross. This is what Paul communicates in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the good news of the gospel. We can't seek to earn favor with God. That was never the law's purpose. Our sin has separated us from God, and no matter how much we obey, there is still sin to be dealt with. When we rightly understand how Jesus fulfilled the law for us, though, 
and how he died the death that we deserve, we are freed to love God and to walk in obedience from that love, not to earn that love. Rightly understanding the gospel strikes a death blow to legalism. Now, let's consider antinomianism. You might be tempted to think that because Jesus fulfilled the law, you don't have to. The law is done for. Good riddance. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Once again, that view misunderstands the goodness of God's law. Instead, Scripture teaches that we are given a new heart that has the law of God written upon it, and this new heart desires to obey and to keep the commands that God has given us. Hear the words of Ezekiel 36 through, uh, 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. When someone is given a new heart in the spirit of God, they actually desire to obey God from the heart. And this obedience is actually proof of a true love from God. Listen to 1 John 5, 2-3. This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden. Or consider Jesus' words in John 14, 21. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So against antinomianism, we are not a lawless people in Christ. Rather, because of love for God, through that love for God, the law of God is fulfilled in us. Listen to the way Sinclair Ferguson helpfully describes this reality. For the deepest response to antinomianism is not, you are under law, but rather, you are despising the gospel and failing to understand how the grace of God in the gospel works. There is no condemnation for you under the law because of your faith union with Christ. But that same faith union leads, the leads to the requirements of the law <coughs> being fulfilled through the Spirit. Your real problem is not that you do not understand the law. It is that you do not understand the gospel. Our relationship to the law is not a bare legal one, coldly impersonable. No, our conformity to its fruit is the fruit from our marriage to our new husband, Jesus Christ. So because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets on our behalf, has given us his spirit, we are now free to actually obey and fulfill the law from our hearts. Church, God wants your heart. He's never been concerned with mere obedience, external conformity to his law, but rather he wants you. He wants all of you totally dedicated to him. Therefore, I want to ask, are you struggling this morning with one of these two fatal errors? Do you find yourself this morning in one of these dreadful ditches? I can assure you that no peace and no rest will come in these ditches. But there is peace and rest found in Christ. Return to him this morning. He stands ready to receive you. Or perhaps you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. And you might even now be recognizing for the first time that you're a sinner before a holy God. After hearing this sermon, you know that you too need a new heart so that you can actually love God from your heart. 
Well, there's also good news for you today. Jesus Christ came to save sinners just like you. He lived the life you could not live. He died the death that sinners deserved in our place. And he was resurrected three days later, conquering sin and death. And guess what? He invites sinners just like you to come to him. No charge, no work. You can't clean yourself up. Don't even try. Simply look to Jesus. He's the only way of salvation, and you'll only find it by looking to him. He's accomplished everything for you. He'll give you his perfect righteousness. He'll transform you into his likeness. Would you come to him this morning? Would you come to him now as we pray? Father, we are so thankful for the righteousness that we have in Christ. God, we are thankful that you, as our Heavenly Father, have given us your word so that we can know how to please you, how to love you, how to follow you faithfully. God, we do not want to fall in one of these ditches. Instead, we want to follow on the clear road, the path of faith. God, would you please help us with that this morning? Would you please help us rest in Christ, find our satisfaction in him and him alone? God, thank you for doing everything for us. If there's anyone here, God, who doesn't know you, would you draw them to yourself? Open their eyes to see their need for Christ. Help them come and talk to one of these pastors or the church member even sitting next to them. Father, we love you and we praise you. Thank you for all these things. Amen.